Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is our uh, continued uh, series of Journal Club with Annals of Surgery. And today we are discussing the paper, Changing Autonomy in Operative Experience Through UK General Surgery Training. And we are very excited and honored to have the first author of this paper, Dr. Elizabeth Elsie. Dr. Elsie is a chief resident currently in general surgery in the UK. She just finished her PhD, congratulations, and she's a doctoral fellow at the UK's National Institute for Health Research. Thank you so much for joining in today, Dr. Elsie. We really appreciate it. That's great. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor. We also have on our podcast this morning, Dr. Brian George. He is an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Michigan. He's the Director of Educational Research at the Center for Health Outcomes and Policy. He's a national leader in operative performance assessment and is the Executive Director of the Procedural Learning and Safety Collaboration. We are very excited to have you on on our podcast too, Dr. George. Thank you for joining us. It's really my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So on today's episode, uh, we are going to be trying something new. Uh, We have invited our expert guest, Dr. Elsie, and also we have um, our expert uh, in the same field, Dr. George, to uh, walk us through the study. And uh, Karen, would you take away from here? Absolutely. So Dr. Elsie's study published in Annals of Surgery um, summarized the case logs and the self-reported autonomy of all British surgical residents from 2007 to 2016. For a handful of procedures, appendectomy, inguinal hernia repair, colectomy, cholecystectomy, and emergency laparotomy. They found that residents did more of the complex procedures as they got farther along in training and that their autonomy increased as well. Perhaps more surprising to an American audience, their autonomy was quite uh, substantial to begin, to begin with. 78% of appendectomies were unsupervised during their first year of training, and this increased to 91% by, by their last year. For cholecystectomy, 12% of cases were initially unsupervised, but 47% were unsupervised at the end of training. For laparotomies, it went from 18% to 41%. Obviously, there are a few differences in their training system. Uh, British residents complete two to four years of training before their actual surgical residency, and they're about around 30 years old when they're considered first years. But their training does last six years after those initial four uh, of foundation and core years. So um, I'll turn it over to Dr. George now to get us started. Great, thank you, Karen. Um, so I had seen this paper when it first came out and, and, and really recognized this as an incredibly important study. Um, I'm really thrilled that Annals published it. Um, and I think it accesses a pretty unique resource um, internationally to have this you know, e-portfolio of cases with associated assessment data is um, really a wonderful opportunity. And I'm, I'm just so thrilled that you took the opportunity to analyze them. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for disseminating it, publishing it for everyone to look at. I'm kind of curious to know what motivated you to do this. What did you see as the opportunity or the the primary problem that you were trying to address? 
Okay, so um, I guess the first thing to say is that this study formed part of um, a wider study of specialty surgical training in the UK. Um, And that came about really because we have lots and lots of routinely collected data in the UK. As you've already mentioned, every operation that we, we undertake is recorded with various bits of information about the time of day that it was done, whether it was an emergency or not, and how much supervision the trainee had. Um, And we also collect lots of routinely collected data relating to our placements um, and competency assessments and annual reviews of competency as well. So lots and lots of routinely collected data. Um, But we didn't really know what was actually happening because none of this data had ever been analysed. And then furthermore, in the UK, so I'm particularly interested in how we assess competency in terms of procedural experience. Um, And in the UK, currently, we do that in two ways. First of all, trainees have to undertake minimum numbers of operations, both in total, but also for um, what have been identified as key index procedures. And these are amongst the commonest surgical procedures performed worldwide and include inguinal hernia repair, appendicectomy, cholecystectomy. Um, So we have to do minimum numbers of these operations. And then we also have to undertake competency assessments and we use a a standardized tool which is a criterion based reference tool called the procedure based assessment and it's assessed kind of through four levels and the top level assessment level four is described as being able to undertake a procedure unsupervised and could deal with any um, complications that arose so we have these two ways of assessing competency standards But the numbers, those minimum numbers, are based on fairly outdated evidence of a a survey of just 58 trainee logbooks. And all they did was looked at how much operating those trainees had done and looked at the 25th centile and based how much operating they thought that future trainees should do on on that 25th centile. So it wasn't related in any way to competency assessment. um, And it was quite outdated. These these logbooks are really quite old. And and then obviously there's these evolving concepts around competency which are changing and coming in. And with particular kind of understanding of the entrustment concept and changes coming to the UK with our regulatory body, the the General Medical Council, the GMC, mandating changes. So we found ourselves in this situation where we've got lots and lots of data that we were collecting routinely and had been doing since 2007, but we'd never really looked at. We've got standards that we were expecting trainees to achieve, but they were based on kind of fairly outdated and fairly shaky evidence. And we've got changing understanding of what competency actually meant. Um, And so this study really arose out of all of that. And we hope that it it helps um, add understanding to what's happening in the UK and also kind of guide further understanding about what competency is in the UK, when it's achieved and how we measure it. That's fascinating. Um, And I I think I want to really dig into some of the results that that you have. Um, But in order to make sense of it, I wondered if you'd be willing to provide a little bit more context about the UK training paradigm, which is different than ours and here over here in the US, obviously. And specifically, those initial years, the, those four years before you do your specialty training, um, how much surgical experience is obtained? And by surgical, I mean operative experience. Okay, so that's, that's a really good question. Um, obviously, training in the UK is very different to um over in North America um when a trainee well let me start right at the beginning you finish your A-levels or that sort of experience at age 18 and then you go to university and 
probably the, the vast majority still of uh, medical students go straight to doing a medical degree at university. And they do either a five or six year university degree. And then they start work as junior doctors. And we call those that first year of training foundation year one. And then they do a second year of foundation training. And those first two years of foundation training are really broad based general training. So, um, for example, I did general medicine, some general surgery, some odds and gyne, a bit more general surgery, uh, general practice or primary care um, and intensive care. So kind of real broad based uh, early years training. And then you apply for your area of what you what you think you might like to do. So I obviously wanted to do surgery. So I applied um, for core surgical training, although actually at that time there was a funny year where we had something called run through training where you, you could do this sort of run through program where core and specialty training was combined but that doesn't happen anymore but now what happens is you do two years of core training and again this is quite general broad-based uh, training but it is in your chosen area so general surgery trainees might rotate through a, a different um, areas of of surgery including plastic surgery kind of colorectal surgery, upper gastrointestinal surgery, um, maybe some trauma and orthopedics, so through some different surgical specialties, um, but with a, a theme uh, of general surgery, if that's what they were choosing. Um, in terms of how much operative or procedural experience a trainee completing core surgical training would have, we don't know the answer to that um, for exactly the same reasons that until I analysed this data relating to the specialty training, um, it, it, we've been collecting this data, but, but nobody's looked at it. So we don't know. It's not been published um, and, we, and we're not sure is the, is the short answer. Trainees are expected to meet um, certain standards and they are expected to at least be starting to do appendicectomies unsupervised. Um, and the recruitment stage for specialty training does include a review of surgical logbooks and an understanding that trainees have got some procedural experience, but that is unquantified currently. And just to clarify for my own edification, um, core, the core training is the first four years and the specialist training is after the four years. Is that the terminology? Yeah, sort of. So that the terminology is the first two years after medical school are foundation years. Then it's two years of core training, and then it's six years, if it's general surgery, of specialty training. Those time periods change slightly for other um, postgraduate medical specialties, but for general surgery, it's uh, two foundation, two of core, and then six of specialty. Um, thanks for the explanation of how that all works. And in that context, what do you see as the most important finding from your analysis? Oh, um, so I, I think there were some findings that we were a little bit surprised by um, and other findings that we weren't so much surprised by, but kind of backed up what we felt anecdotally. Um, so I think probably the biggest findings were perhaps the differences um, between the supervision of trainees and their assessment outcomes. So, for example, in the first year of specialty training, um, nearly 80% of appendicectomies were being recorded as performed unsupervised, but only 15% of those first year trainees had recorded a level four procedure-based assessment, which is this competency assessment. 
So that's a real, really big mismatch between what's happening um, in reality and the outcomes of those competency assessments. And I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that it, it means that we don't have a whole load of appendectomies that are being performed by trainees who aren't competent. What I actually think is that our assessment system isn't reflecting the competency attainment in those trainees of these more simple procedures. Whereas if you flip that and then you look at something more slightly, slightly more complicated, like um, a segmental colectomy, um, you can see that in, in the first year of training, far fewer procedures recorded unsupervised um, and far fewer trainees were also being awarded this level four procedure-based assessment. And actually, as trainees progressed through training, uh, more and more trainees were awarded this level four um, procedure-based assessment, you know, this sort of you are competent to do this in a formal way assessment by completion of training. But by completion of training, still a relatively small percentage were performing these seg segmental colectomies unsupervised. Um, and that's probably reflection of the ongoing higher level training um, in these segmental colectomies. You know, it's entirely appropriate that even very senior trainees are receiving ongoing guidance and supervision for complicated procedures. But it also might be a reflection of the absence of another available assistant. So often in our theatres, it would be the consultant or um, attending, as you would know them in America, um, that is in theatres and then the, the specialty trainee or resident, as you would call them. And it may just be that there was nobody else available to assist the specialty trainee and so therefore it's recorded in the in the trainee's logbook as supervised with the trainer scrubbed rather than entirely unsupervised so there's a whole kind of complexity um, that surrounds some of this this data I think yeah I don't think I really appreciated the difference between l4 level competency assessment and the supervisory ratings and and now that you point that out I I mean I see in your paper that's fascinating um, yeah. One of the things that really struck us, which I think we're going to talk about in a few minutes, is the um, the amount of unsupervised practice when compared to our system in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things that aligns very well with our data is this, you know, 80%, I think it's the 80% uh, of sixth training year um, tr trainees were deemed to be competent, L4 for a segmental colectomy. So 80% is the kind of headline number yeah. there. And we found something very similar in our national sample as well, about 80%. So very yeah. different training process, very maybe very different supervisory experiences for the trainees, but mm -hmm. at least for that one, which I think is a really key procedure, it's about the yeah. same number at the very end of the whole thing. And I think that's interesting. What do you, what do you make of that? So I, do, I think I agree, it's very interesting. What is, for, for me as a UK trainee, even more interesting that it wasn't 100% because our um, completion of training criteria, the, the standards that we're meant to meet by completion of training, specify that all trainees must meet a level four competency in each of these key procedures. So in appendicectomy, inguinal hernia, cholecystectomy, segmental colectomy emergency laparotomy and Hartman's, every general surgery trainee has to have level four competency signed off and these minimum numbers of procedures recorded unsupervised or supervised with a trainer. Um, 
So actually what was interesting was that these trainees were being allowed to complete training because the cohort studied in this study were all trainees that had finished and successfully completed training. Um, so they were being signed off as competent to become independent general surgeons, but they hadn't recorded the assessments that our current curricula requires. And part of that is actually explained by the introduction of these standards. The standards were induced, introduced in 2013 and they were applied a little bit flexibly for the first year or two. So my cohort does include a group of trainees that came through that training time whilst those standards were being introduced. If we looked at uh, a cohort of trainees that started training in 2013 and finishing this year in 2019, I would actually expect that to be 100% because they are the requirements of the curriculum. Thanks for that clarification. Now, um, speaking from the perspective of an American surgical resident, I was really um impressed by how much more autonomy and, and how much less supervised British residents are than American ones, you know, given your finding that up, up to 90% of procedures are unsupervised by the time of residents in their last year. Now, Dr. George's paper on American residents show, didn't, didn't really talk about unsupervised operations, but it did say that about a third of cases were independent or near independent. And obviously there's a, there, there, and there's a major difference in your approaches because Dr. George's paper used faculty ratings versus uh, resident ratings, which is what, what your paper used. So do you think that the gap between you know, American and British training is truly that wide in, in terms of uh, autonomy and supervision? Or do you think that's sort of confounded by the, by the person who's doing the rating? Um, so it's, it's difficult, I guess, for me to comment on the US system because I've not worked in the US. Um, and I guess the other thing is that our training system is so much longer and we do expect those trainees that are coming in at the start of specialty training to already be uh, undertaking some procedures unsupervised that I think they are starting from a different point. I think the interesting thing around um, resident self-rating and faculty rating is, is an important one and I, I think the, the logbook data, the, the operative record data that we included in this study, it, it is recorded by trainees. So they say whether they have performed the procedure unsupervised or with the trainer scrubbed helping or with the trainer unscrubbed but sat in the corner of the theatre keeping an eye on things or whether they performed the, the procedure entirely unsupervised. So that is a resident kind of recording of the degree of their involvement in the case. However, those resident logbooks are reviewed very regularly by um, our supervisors. So we have regular supervision meetings every couple of months where we'd expect our clinical and educational supervisors to go through our logbooks. And if they saw that something was amiss or, you know, kind of didn't really make sense for a trainee stage of training, then that would be raised. And then at the end of every year of training, we have an annual review of competency where, again, our logbooks are reviewed. Um, and so there is a degree of validation in that. Um, and it would also be considered a probity issue for trainees to be overstating their involvement in a case. You know, and if you've got a first year trainee that's saying, oh, yes, I performed that um, Ivor Lewis esophagectomy independently, then eyebrows would be raised and questions would be asked um, to make sure that a trainee was recording their cases um, accurately. So, um, again, some complexity around the data, um, and that might be in part, part of it. Um, and I guess the, the procedure-based assessment, which is our competency assessment, is very similar to a faculty rating of independence because of the way that our assessment um, standards are phrased. So as I've already mentioned, the kind of the level four rating for a procedure-based assessment is that the, the trainer is stating that the trainee 
the resident was able to perform the procedure independently and could deal with any complications that arose. Obviously, in order to give that assessment, they have to be present in the theatre and witness the case. Um, so that in itself affects the uh, recording of that procedure by the trainee. So in fact, it's not possible to have a case signed off as level four and perform it unsupervised in the same sitting because it's just not possible. You have to have a trainer present in order to have that case assessed. Does that does that make sense? It does. It does. And I think uh, it's an interesting, interesting problem um, of, you know, the question of who is observing and who's creating that um, autonomy rating. Uh, and Dr. George is a really unique um, source of data that might help us with this. Um, he, he's helped uh, lead the Simple app, which we use as residents to rate our own autonomy, after which our faculty would rate our, our autonomy. And so I'd be curious to ask Dr. George, um, what was the what was the gap in residents self-rated autonomy in a procedure versus what their faculty thought? And um, you know, if if you if you asked of your own national American data, would you would you say that ninety percent of residents at the end of training considered themselves independent? No, uh, they wouldn't. Um, nor would the faculty agree. There is a gap in the perception, but it's not far. Um, you know, we use a categorical rating scale, so it's it's hard to interpret what a partial difference is in that kind of scale, but it's about half of a level. So, you know, if the attending thinks there are three, I'm just picking numbers, we don't actually use numbers, but if the attending thinks it's a three, the resident would think it was about two and a half. Um, so it's close. And I will say that the trends also correlate pretty well. The row is about 0.66. Um, so it's close. And I think that having residents rate themselves um, with this or having just faculty rate themselves with some small corrections is probably about equally valid, honestly. So I don't think there's probably much difference. And and what do we in the U.S. have to learn from um, the way that um, they they log and they assess autonomy in the, in the U.K.? I mean, to me, the thing that really jumped out in reading this was that there was a national mandate for trainees to centrally log their operative experience. And what that unlocks is the ability to do quality improvement, essentially. When I mean quality improvement, I mean improving the quality of education. So things like this paper are a step forward towards using um, evidence to shape the way that UK surgical residents are trained. And in the United States, there is a mandate to record operative experience, but it's entirely a process metric. There's no recording of the quality of that experience. So, you know, I mean, the ACG case logs are, did you do it? Who'd you do it with? And, you know, what was your role, which is, uh, you know, I don't think a valid measure as opposed to how much guidance did you require? And, you know, what was your readiness for independent practice? So I think that this is a better way of doing it. And I hope that, um, I hope that the future is all surgical trainees are assessed around the world with something similar to this. I was interested though that the, the residents do seem to self-select which cases they want to be evaluated on. Um, did I read that correctly? And if so, you know, what do you think the implications are um, for bias? Yeah, so that's um, a really good point. And by no means is the UK system perfect. Um, so how the system is meant to work 
is that trainees should, at the start of an operating list or the start of a case, say to their consultant they're attending, um, I'd really like it if we could complete um, an assessment on this procedure. And the consultant says, yeah, great. And so, you know, the, the, the case proceeds in that manner. And that is how things are meant to work. So before the start of the case, you might say, right, you know, I've got a segmental collectomy on today. Really like it if we could do an assessment and then evaluate my, my competency. I think probably the reality is um, not that in 100% of cases. Um, and that trainees will probably say at the end of a case, oh, boss, that went quite well. Uh, do you think we could do an assessment on that? Which obviously is going to bias um the ratings because you're going to choose the cases which have gone quite well however i do think that consultants rate cases with their uh, broader view of how a trainee is and they understand they 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 are wise to those tricks <laughs> and they you know they would rate the trainees um competency based on their their view of the training more generally and not maybe necessarily just for that case. I don't know, I'm hypothesizing. And again, that might be an area for some qualitative research in the future. But again, it's a really interesting point. And I think one thing that's demonstrated in, in our data really quite nicely is, for example, in the appendicectomies where trainees right at the start of training are performing them unsupervised. So they have therefore been deemed competent by this sort of entrustment decision uh, concept to get on and do the case. However, they've not got that assessment signed off saying that they're competent. And the reason might well be because they're doing them unsupervised. So there simply isn't a supervisor present in theatre to rate them, to do the assessment. Or perhaps that they're viewing the assessments as a bit of a tick box exercise and that they're not really a very good evaluation of a trainee's competency. Um, and that's why, as demonstrated in the data in the paper, that actually even in the fight, you know, the fifth and sixth years of specialty training, trainees are still just getting their level four assessments signed off for appendicectomy. And that's not because I don't believe that they weren't competent to perform those appendicectomies earlier in training. It's just that they hadn't bothered to get the assessments done yet. And so we can see that the trend for in kind of increasing numbers of trainees obtaining competency through training as judged by this assessment that there is not a statistical trend for increasing competency attainment for appendicectomy and inguinal hernia these more simple procedures and that like I say is probably those reasons that I've just outlined above that trainees are performing them unsupervised there's no one present to do the the uh, assessment um, and it's viewed as a bit of a tick box thing but conversely, if you look at something that's more complicated, like a cholecystectomy or a segmental colectomy, then actually there is a really statistically significant trend through the course of training. And these assessments and the changing rating of, of trainees of competency through training is probably a more accurate reflection of their changing competency. And that was something that I, I found personally really interesting in, in our UK data is that we could statistically evidence the fact that these competency assessments are used differently depending on the complexity of the procedure. And that's not something that we dem demonstrated before. So you already jumped kind of into what I wanted to ask um, regarding these entrustable activities. So, you know, we're starting, um, there's a pilot program in some of the U.S. generalist surgery programs using these entrustable professional activities. And um, I'm just wondering for both Dr. George and you, 
um, how can we get it to a point where these aren't just these tick boxes, but it is kind of a natural flow through the residency progression where um, you are getting signed off. And once you've attained that level of autonomy, then, you know, you're signed off and you just anytime you do those procedures, you are autonomous. And um, in that sense as well, um, I don't fully I you may have mentioned this, but I don't fully understand whether you guys have a full apprenticeship model or how much of it is similar to us where we have multiple faculty on a service and we just rotate through those services, because I think that plays a part in getting signed off and being able to do those procedures autonomously whenever they do come up throughout the training years. Yeah, so again, that's also really interesting and very um, timely and controversial in the UK. Um, as I've mentioned, the, the GMC, our regulatory body, has mandated that all postgraduate training curricula have to be rewritten in the UK with more of a focus on this understanding and concept of entrustment. Um, and I, you know, we've adopted competency-based training systems in the UK many, many years ago now, but that has somewhat been reduced to little building block assessments of individual tasks and um, assessing the adequacy of each brick does not make for um, an adequate wall when you put them all together, if that makes sense. So just because somebody has got all these little things ticked off, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've got a really solid and reliable wall at the end of it, which means that they're a competent trainee. And that's that's been reflected um, in some of the... Uh, re rewritings of the curricula and so the way that entrustable professional activities are going to take place in the UK is going to be slightly different but it's going to be around being able to undertake a clinic unsupervised whereas previously we'd have been expected to have been assessed on taking a history breaking bad news uh, making a diagnosis or formulating a management plan writing a letter and all these individual little assessments and now it's going to be one sort of broad overview um, assessment of can a trainee undertake a clinic unsupervised or not or what degree of entrustment do they have um, so you know if the change is coming um, to the UK yeah I couldn't agree more that finding the right level of assessment is going to be very important um, I mean I think historically the bias has always been towards fine-grained assessment because more is you know, intuitively seems better. Um, but I, I mean, I completely agree with you that a more global synthesized assessment of, of performance, maybe, you know, in a couple of different dimensions is probably the best method because I think you really do want to aggregate lots of different snapshots of performance into something that is more holistic because practice is holistic. You know, we don't, we don't, work with one brick at a time. We work with the wall. That's what it means to be a surgeon in practice. So I, I agree that, you know, as people are starting to think through what it means to assess competency and what it means to assess, um, you know, EPAs, um, that figuring out the right level is going to be really important. The other thing, just to pick up on what you were talking about, um, that I think is a really interesting potential innovation is this idea of continuous certification. But this idea that uh, maybe we can figure out when people are competent to do a procedure independent of their level of training and then permit them to continue to do those things independently um, as they enter into practice. And so, you know, graduation is almost this staged thing that happens uh, procedure by procedure. 
basis or maybe an EPA by EPA basis, I think has a lot of promise. And in my mind, at least, is a better way to credential people and make sure that they're competent as opposed to it's either yes or no for the entire basket of all procedures that they might do. Because and we've already seen with some of the U.S. data that it's actually unrealistic, in my opinion, that people will be confident to do all those things. So we should probably just acknowledge that transparently. Um, at least that's my opinion. I wanted to shift gears and, and ask you about the influence of duty hours on uh, your surgical training in the UK. Um, it's a big topic in the US and it's often a source of controversy because about a decade ago, our work hours were um, were required to be 80 hours per week or less and our shifts required to be 30 hours or less. And this is, continues to be a source of controversy. In the UK, my understanding is that you're you're restricted to 48 hours a week. And is, is, is that the case in surgery as well? And can you talk to us about how you manage to take care of patients and learn surgery and, and, and half the time is what we do? Um, you are correct. We do work 48 hours a week um, in the UK, and that's part of the European Working Time Directive that has been mandated for several years in the UK now. So um, overall, each week we work fewer hours. But as we've already talked about, um, overall our years in um, training are longer. So I think that's part of the trade-off is we do few hours per week, but longer, more years in total. So, so that's there's an element of that. Um, our on-calls are busy, um, depending on which hospital that you're working in, but I work in a major tertiary referral centre, and our on-calls and our, our um, shifts are very, very busy. And there is an expectation that trainees are trained during every shift. Um, and so if I'm doing an elective uh, operating list, there is an expectation that I will have prepared for the cases, I know the cases, I come in, um, check their consents, do questions you know, with the patients, go to the OR, prepare with the, the operating room team and do the case with the, with the consultant present or perhaps with a senior fellow even. Um, and so the mantra of every day is a school day does apply, I think, in the UK. That, again, that isn't always perfect. And one of the, the age-old discussions about training in the UK is the service versus training balance. And some people are of the view that all service is training. Um, and some people are of the view that not all service is, is good training. And so I think it's about really maximising our training opportunities within a, a busy, dynamic NHS workforce um, and workplace. To go back to the question about the apprenticeship model, so um, that was previously the case in the UK, but um, increasingly over the last years, that has become much less the case. And the way that our specialty training is structured, is, um, as I mentioned, it's six years, and it would be usual for a trainee in those six years to rotate through a number of different hospitals in their geographical region to which they're attached. So I work in the East Midlands, and there's... Um, two big major university teaching hospitals, a smaller university teaching hospital, and then a number of um, smaller, again, district general hospitals. And through the course of my training, I will work in a mixture of those hospitals from the, the big major centre out to the smaller, quieter district general hospitals and for a number of different consultants. And in some ways, um, that's a bad thing because you don't have that apprenticeship, you, you don't you're not seen regularly by one member of faculty. But on the other hand, it's a very good thing because it broadens out your training and it gives you a breadth of 
understanding and experience of different areas, different ways of working, different ways of doing things, and more than one train of view of you. So we work for, I work for multiple faculty within one big teaching hospital currently, um, but it might be that in my next rotation, I work at a smaller hospital and work for maybe only one or two consultants and work for them for six, six months and then rotate on again. And all of that builds up to a portfolio of um, assessments and comments about you as a trainee, which, as I said, are, are um, evaluated every year, at a formal review of your competency. Um, and again, at the completion of training, when trainees are looking to finish their training and be signed off as independent practitioners. I actually wanted to um, shift gears again and kind of um, take it back to autonomy. Um, over here in the United States with insurance and malpractice and uh, being on the rise, the residents are much more supervised now, which has definitely has had a negative correlation with the autonomy that we have in the operating room. Uh, but this is definitely better for patients. Is there something similar? Um, is there a similar dialogue that has been going on in the UK as well? Absolutely. Um, I think there is a real um, feeling of um, older consultants who have been working for more years, who trained through the old system of looking back on their training with very much rose-tinted glasses and talking about the good old days where they worked, you know, 100, 120-hour weeks, didn't see their family. Um, it was knife before wife before life. Um, and, you know, your, your surgical career came above everything. And I think, um, like I say, there is a real temptation of, of some people to talk about the good old days. Perhaps, though, they were actually the bad old days. Um, and, you know, the the burnout rate amongst surgeons perhaps was contributed to by those unworkable hours. Certainly not great for um, females in surgery that might wanted to have pursued a family as well as a surgical career. And that's very difficult. And also, I think that mantra of see one, do one, teach one attitude um, isn't great for patients. Um, and nowadays, training is much more structured and much more assessed. Um, and I think that the primary aim of that really, it all boils down, is to protecting patients and to um, improving surgical standards and outcomes. And that has to be our, our primary focus within any form of healthcare. Our primary focus has to be on the well-being and the outcomes of patients and then how we deliver training within that paradigm. So one thing with autonomy that, you know, we, when we discuss the technical point, sometimes we don't discuss patient perception. And, um, you know, one of the issues that with the regulations um, in the United States that comes up is, you know, patient satisfaction, um, the litigious attitudes when there are mistakes. And, and this comes into play as far as how much residents should be allowed to be autonomous as trainees. And so I was wondering, what is the perception of residents and trainees um, in the UK? And uh, how does how has that come to play as far as this uh, role of, you know, giving more autonomy, autonomy to trainees as they go progress through their training? Okay, and I think that's a really um, interesting question. And I think that probably varies by trainer or consultant. So some trainers are more risk averse than others. Um, and those more risk averse consultants are less likely to let their trainees perform a procedure unsupervised. 
um, and would would find it better for their own personal mental health to be in in the operating room keeping a check on what was going on rather than leaving the trainee to get on with it so I think that's one dynamic um I think a really interesting piece of work that could be done is around time of day and the influence on that and we, we know from some of the literature around entrustment that these kind of um informal ad hoc entrustment decisions about whether a trainee can perform something unsupervised or not um, do go or are influenced rather by uh, other staff availability how busy the shift is the other pressures on the staffing that day the time of day etc so there's all sorts of kind of competing interests on supervision in terms of um patients and their expectations I think it's just really important to be clear with patients and be be open so if I'm taking consent for a procedure that I will be performing then I make sure that that the patient knows that I will be performing that procedure you know it's all down to personal responsibility and I wouldn't attempt to perform a procedure as a trainee that I wasn't happy to do um, or that I wasn't happy that I'd got um, somebody more senior to be able to come and supervise me if I needed them um, so there is a, a bit of a difference in that dynamic because I, I, my understanding is that in the US, the supervision is more because of perhaps this sort of fear of um, the litigious society. But I don't, I don't think it's quite the same in the UK in that respect, actually. And I think trainees are probably allowed to operate more independently. But within that framework of understanding their competency assessments, etc., so one of the um, interesting things I saw in your paper is the minimum required number of competency-based assessments. You know, each of the index procedures had certain numbers of assessments that were required. Um, and, you know, of course, those assessments have some error associated with them. Um, especially you mentioned, for example, sometimes it's hard to get uh, assessed when you're unsupervised because they're not there to assess it. And also, you know, there's a lot of variability between raters. Some are hawks, some are doves. So be, because of the error and the the bias, frankly, in those ratings, um, you know, there's some certain number of ratings that are needed in order to have a reliable estimate of someone's true performance. And what's your sense of the future um, in terms of how those reliability estimates are going to be incorporated into minimum case number requirements? Uh, for performance logging. Let me, let me try and rephrase that, actually. So a lot of these ratings are, are somewhat variable. You know, there's a, a fair amount of rater bias involved in them. So if you only get a couple of ratings, it's not clear that, that those the average of those ratings is reflecting the true performance of the trainee. And so, you know, as the UK is starting to think through a new assessment regime, um, and making minimum number requirements for how many ratings are required, you know, how much? What's your sense of how much they're taking into account the reliability of these instruments? Okay, so again, another really good question. The um, the assessment tool that we use in the UK, the procedure based assessment, has um, been put through a, an NIHR National Institute of Health Research Health Technology Assessment Program uh, back in I think it was two thousand and eleven by Jonathan Beard and his colleagues. Um, and they did a big study looking at different assessments of procedural competency um, across a number of different surgical specialties and at different uh, training levels. 
And the procedure-based assessment came out kind of on top, really, um, in terms of its reliability and validity, um, statistically speaking. Um, and so what they found is that because it was criterion referenced, so very clear criteria based, it's not peer reference, it's not something that you're looking at in relation to others, it's not a stage thing, norm referenced is, is the technical term. Because it's criterion referenced, that helps with the reliability. But they show, statistically speaking, that in order to reach a reliability G score of 0.8, you had to have um, three independently assessed. Um, procedure-based assessments at judged at a level four so that's actually our requirement for for curriculum in the UK is that we have to do three individually assessed level fours by individually assessed I mean three individual consultant assessments um, so there's kind of been some research into that previously and that has based um, the use of these competency standards um, however that data as, as with any research, um, does have some flaws in that it was a whole mix of different surgical specialties, including cardiothoracics, um, general surgery, obs and gynae. And the procedures that they included in their um, assessments were as diverse as um, a diagnostic laparoscopy through to coronary artery bypass grafting. And for the purposes of statistical assessment, they lumped all of those procedures in together. So there's definitely some... some um, room for critique of that study. Um, I guess in the UK we have these minimum numbers currently. We've talked about where those numbers came from just from a, a survey of a number of trainee logbooks and just took the 25th centile. So it wasn't related in any way to a competency assessment standard. And so that's something that we're looking at in the UK is trying to look at the relationship between competency assessment as judged formally by an assessment standard, which is not perfect by any means, but it's it's what we have, and it's probably the best of what of what we're going to have um, against minimum numbers and using those to to feed into each other. So, for example, um, currently in the UK, trainees have to undertake fifty um, cholecystectomies, and by that point, only forty percent of people had under had achieved a level four assessment. Um, so we can see that our numbers of, of operations that trainees take don't relate to their, their acquisition of competency currently. And so some of the other work that I've done with, within this wider study has been around associating minimum numbers of operations and competency outcomes. And that's something that we're hoping to publish in due course. So maybe we'll chat about that again in the future. <laughs> but um, that, you know, that is evolving work that we're hoping to put out from the UK to better understand the relationship between numbers and competency. Great. Now, one last uh, one last question, I think, to sort of put this all back in perspective. Um, we've been talking a lot about um, autonomy and supervision, and you touched on the your, your discussion with the patient and the role of that uh, informed consent on this whole uh, issue of autonomy. So we'd love to just paint a, paint a broader picture of your dialogue with patients about who's performing their operation. In the U.S., I think it's it's a slightly different dynamic because patients getting elective surgery, they're often referred to a surgeon and they come to see that specific surgeon and there's some expectation that that surgeon will be in the room doing the operation. But perhaps it's a little different in the U.K. if they're really referred within the system more so than the surgeon. So if you could just paint a picture for us about how that conversation works with patients, we'd love to hear about it. Um, so I think... 
Um, there's a difference between elective and emergency operations, obviously. In an elective, you know, um, planned operating environment, then yes, patients generally are seen by one consultant who um, might see them in the clinic and counsel for them that, for their operation and take their consent. And then on the day of the operation, the conversation, the dialogue that I tend to have is, you know, hi, my name's um, Lizzie. I'm one of the surgeons working in theatres today. I will be helping the consultant in charge of your case and we will be doing that operation together um, and that's because when I do elective cases those cases currently are very much that I am operating with the consultant supervision and it might well be that I do the majority of the case but the consultant is there and we work together and so that's how I how I phrase that that I will be doing the case with the with the consultant today and I haven't to date have a, had a single patient who said well I'm not happy about that um, because it's very clear that we're, we're operating, we're working together. In an on-call or an emergency environment, then often I am the surgeon that they see as they come through the door, and it's me that sees them, diagnoses their appendicitis, and takes their appendix out for them. And, um, and, and again, they seem fine about that. Occasionally, I might have a patient that says, will, will a consultant be present? And I will say yes, no, or otherwise, or say yes, um, they will, because I'm expecting this to be difficult, or... No, they won't because I'm expecting this to be very routine and straightforward, but obviously they are available should I feel that I need to call them. I mean, I've never had a, a patient um, decline you know, my status as the operating surgeon yet, but that may well come in the future. But that's, that's how the dialogue tends to go, I think. This is uh, this is just perfect. Um, well, we thank you so much, uh, Dr. Elsie and Dr. George, for joining us today. Until next time, dominate the day.